Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a best-selling songwriter, novelist, journalist and biographer whose work is published in 36 languages and counting. Her first book, A Great Task of Happiness, a biography of her grandmother, Kathleen Scott, was published in 1995 and then followed a series of both fiction and non-fiction works nominated for prizes including the Orange Prize for Fiction, the International Dublin Literary Award and the Costa Book of the Year Award. Her first album, You Left Early, a collection of songs about the death of her fiancé, is based on her book of the same name. As a journalist, she's written for many national publications such as The Guardian, The Sunday Times and Marie Claire. Her most recent novel, Twelve Months and a Day, is a heartbreaking and thought-provoking story of love and death. Louisa Young, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, this is not the first time you've been on the programme and uh, people can find our previous interview in our archives. I wanted to, though, revisit a little bit of what we talked about in that programme because your early life is absolutely fascinating. You grew up in the house in which Peter Pan was written. I did, I did. I come from a long line of curiously overlapping things and... J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, was a huge fan of Captain Scott of the Antarctic. Scott wanted to be a writer and, and Barry wanted to be an explorer. And Scott's wife, widow, was my grandmother, whose biography I, I wrote, um, The Great Task of Happiness. And when Barry moved out of his lovely house on Bayswater Road in London, it ended up uh, that my grandparents bought it. And they bought it in 1924. Six, I think, when my dad was about three. And we lived there up until about three years ago after my parents died, tragically. No longer possible, really, for anybody normal to live in London. So that was that. The house had to go after nearly nearly a century of our family living there. And do you feel some of that literary tradition seeped into you? Well, I tell you what, I do think that the normalisation of stuff happens in all families. And in my family, it was absolutely normal to spend your whole time reading, writing, talking, discussing you know, and the assumption was that, you know, people wrote books and read books and that was what you do. So, yes, I wrote my first book when I was six and fully aware of, you know, the great books had been written in in the same room. Actually, he wrote Peter Pan above the what had been the old coach house at the bottom of our garden, which was then my grandmother's studio and then there was a flat above and then, you know, my parents lived in that, you know, all sort of chopping and changing. So I didn't actually get to write a book where he'd written it, but I did get to gaze out the window and think, Peter Pan, come and take me away. (laughs) (laughs) What was your first book when you were six about? Oh, it was a very, very dull book indeed. It was about a, a little mouse called Wilfred. And it went, once upon a time, there was a little mouse called Wilfred and he lived on a boat. And on his boat he had... A bed, a chair, a sofa, a kitchen table, kitchen chairs, some knives, some forks, some spoons, some marmalade, some carpets, some curtains. And it was basically just a list. So I use this when, when I do stuff with teaching children, you know, and I say to them, you know, is this a good book? And they say, no, miss. And I say, why not? And they say, nothing happens, miss. And, you know, yes, exactly. So later I kind of expanded the story. But no, that was written in one of those little... Little blue shiny notebooks. You're probably too young to remember them, but they were very shiny notebooks with lines, and you write in them in really thick, unsharpened pencils. So I wrote all about Wilfred and how nothing happened to him, but he had a very nice, lovely home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, music too, of course, is a huge part mm. of your life. When mm-hmm. when did that emerge as a talent? Oh God, I wouldn't call it a talent. In my family, funnily enough, we can all sing, but only the boys can play instruments. 
And it's really unfair because we all, you know, had absolute equal opportunities to scrape away at a violin and things. But, you know, my father was an excellent pianist. My brother plays trumpet beautifully. All my nephews, it seems, can play the piano. One of them's got the band Penguin Cafe. But, you know, I slogged at instruments. Really, you would not want to hear the results. However, I love singing and I love writing songs. But that only really came to any kind of fruition for me after my fiancé, Robert Lockhart, died. Because he was a musician and he was phenomenal. He, you know, he got himself a scholarship to Oxford at the age of 16 from a comprehensive school in Wigan. So, you know, he's that kind of boy wonder type musician and grew up to be a, a composer full classical orchestration, all that business, and a wonderful piano player. Or pianist, I should say, to be a bit, you know, he wasn't like honky-tonk. He could do honky-tonk, obviously, but also your full right man enough, etc. Um, so, you know, when somebody's got that much music, you tend to kind of stand back a bit, sit under the piano and listen. But when he died, I just started writing songs about him and it. And, you know, as they say, all you need is three chords and a broken heart, and that much I could manage. The book that you wrote about it, You Left Early, A True Story of Love and Alcohol, was published in 2018. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about the book and about the relationship. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about him yesterday. I was walking down the road. It's ten and a half years since he died. And, you know, when something really terrible happens in life and then, you know, it's awful and then you kind of get over it and then... Every now and again, just thwack, there it is again. And yesterday, I, finally, I got one of those kind of whomp to the solar plexus, just thinking about it all. I mean, he was a wonderful man and an impossible man, and anyone who's had anything to do with an alcoholic is very likely to be aware or familiar with that, you know, the, the combination of charm and nightmare and everything. But, you know, he sobered up. He realised that he had to, and he did, but he was very damaged by then, and... I'd always written about him because I was absurdly, <laughs> ridiculously in love with him and we met when we were 17. And, you know, with the book people sometimes say, but, you know, how can you record conversations from 20 years ago? And say, so, you know, believe me, I kept a diary. <laughs> I've been writing about this guy for a very long time. And I just wanted... You know, there's there's plenty of books with alcoholism as part of it and there's plenty of memoirs by alcoholics normally written when they've straightened up, normally when they've reached about step eight and in the 12 and often if they're published, you know, written by famous people who aren't actually writers. But I hadn't read a book by someone in love with an alcoholic since I worked it out, um, Tenant of Wildfell Hall which was published I think in 1828 and that is a phenomenal book about not knowing what's hit you when you're romantically attached and can't escape from someone who who is an alcoholic. And, you know, I, di- I didn't want to escape from Robert. I wanted him not to be an alcoholic. I, I, I wasn't going to leave him unless he came too. You know, we we both had to leave that situation and in our different ways, and then obviously we did. But he did sober up and he did have, you know, a few years of being his sober self, which was wonderful, but very disabled by the um, by the condition and... Then he got cancer, but actually that didn't kill him either. Uh, he's a very contrary person. <laughs> but in the end, it, you know, he he died of a freak accident, not unconnected with the damage caused by living on vodka for far too long. 
And then, of course, you wrote this wonderful, wonderful book. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of been writing it a bit before, and he always said, yeah, you're not going to finish that till I'm dead. <laughs> and so, yeah, but he wanted me to write it. You know, things would happen. He said, I hope you're taking notes. And I said, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, yeah. Now, the very first interview I ever did for Meet the Writers was with Michelle Faber. Uh, was it your first it ever? It was the first ever. Wow. And... It was mostly about his book, Under the Skin. And then afterwards we went out to lunch and he read to me from a book he was working on at that time, which was a book of poems. And he read a poem called Your Plants. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) And the reason I'm telling you this, listeners, is because this is very, very connected to what we're talking about. So Your Plants is about not watering the plants and watching them die, of his late wife. And after his wife died, you and Michelle met. Tell us the story. Well, I was doing a book festival in Sussex at Charleston and I did my event with Neil Bartlett in the afternoon about First World War. And in the evening, my... You know, this writer I admire enormously, Michel Faber, was going to be talking, and I'd never seen him talk, and I thought, oh, exciting. And he read from his new novel, The Book of Strange New Things, and he was up there with an avant-garde musician, and they were kind of extemporising between the music and that. And then he read some poems from this book, and it became apparent that his wife had died a couple of months earlier, and he looked like someone whose wife had died a couple of months earlier after a long and terrible illness. And I got this very strong memory of being up on stage at a festival doing my thing the first time after Robert died. And I'd had three close friends in the front row basically sort of staring at me, their supportive gaze, like sort of guy ropes holding the tent up. And afterwards I'd had to disappear. I couldn't finish the festival and we all went and sat on a war memorial and ate fish and chips. And... I was just looking around trying to check who was with Michel, who were his friends who were looking out for him, and I couldn't see that anybody was. And I worried, because he really didn't look like he should have been out on his own. And then he read some of these poems, and then it was um, time for questions, and it was just massive silence around the room, because the poems, as you say, are incredibly strong. They're the only poems he's ever written have been about her illness and death and the immediate aftermath. Anyway, so there's an unwritten rule with writers. If there's no questions and there's a writer in the audience, you stick your hand up and break the ice. So I broke the ice and my question was, that's a very interesting image you had projected of um, the skeleton sort of, as it were, floating on its back. It's a black and white photograph, which looked a bit Victorian because it was like an image, uh, what's it called, you know, reverse image, negative, or a sort of gelatin print or, you know, something. Anyway, beautiful, curious image. And he said... I don't know if anyone knows what a PET scan is. And, of course, I know exactly what a PET scan is. It's what tells you whether or not your cancer's come back. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, where are we going with this? Turns out this astonishing image had been made by Eva, his wife, using her own PET scans from her own cancer. And this skeleton in this rock pool was her. So I was like, oh, God. And, again, sort of had to run away because it was all a bit much. But afterwards I wrote to him and said, look, you know, I've, I've, I've been there on that stage under similar circumstances and, you know, just this sympathetic condolence. And we became pen pals. And then about a year later we realised that actually, actually it was a romance. 
but obviously a romance has to take its time, certainly under those circumstances, and when you're not 16. And, of course, both of you coming from places of real trauma, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Ab- the, and, you know, the, the, the lovely thing about it is the balance, that there can't be any jealousy or envy or... There's no, in a way, weirdly, there is no baggage because both of us, you know, fate stole our true loves. We both know that we wouldn't have left the person we were with to be with the person we're with now. We both know that um, the person we're with is is someone who's been through stuff, who knows how to be with a partner, who, you know, hasn't dumped anyone or been dumped for emotional misbehaviours of any kind. So we come to it kind of pure and balanced, and it's actually really lovely. Do you talk about your deceased partners? If we need to, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's um, I mean, we did a lot to begin with. I mean, Robert had been dead two years when I met Michelle and Eva less time, but um, no, I mean, that first year we talked about nothing else. It was really great because you can be completely straight about it. And a lot of the time people... are. They may mean very well, and I'm sure they do. I think it's a very weird person who doesn't mean well to someone who's just lost their beloved. Though there are people out there who do. (laughs) She said, thinking of one book review. Inexplicable. Anyway, but, you know, even with the best will in the world, people can say quite cack-handed things, or they're embarrassed, or they don't want to bring it up because, you know, they don't want to remind you, like you've forgotten. Mm. All that's understandable, but when you're in it, sort of together at a not-too-dissimilar stage you can have a much easier to and fro about it and really be a comfort. The reason I'm asking you all of these terribly personal questions Mm -hmm. is, of course, because of your very, very personal book, which is 12 Months and a Day. It is. I love it. People ask me if it's autobiographical and I have to point out two of the characters are ghosts. Ghosts aren't real. (laughs) But then, actually, I do think ghosts are real. (laughs) Do you? Do you? Well, they're re- I mean, you know, define ghost. Everybody knows what a ghost is. Everybody feels that they have ghosts. Everybody can look around their own past and, you know, hear people pottering about in the back corridors. So, yeah, we all kind of know what a ghost is. So, This book is about two people who've lost their partners and their partners are in the book, as you say, as ghosts. And, and it's it may not be autobiographical, but there are clear, clear parallels between this book and, and your relationship with Michelle. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's it was too good a set-up to, to not use. And I would not for one moment sit down and write a serious novel about, you know, me and my boyfriend, because that <laughs> seems... You know, it's, just, it's, it's not very nice, is it? But the idea that came to me... And it's interesting because you introduce it as, you know, sort of telling me how much it makes you cry and so on. I think it's really funny. What I wanted to do was something like sort of Blythe Spirit uh-huh. or, you know, Truly Madly Deeply, where it's, where it's, it's funny. Because I've written, a, you know, I, I, I've written my tragic book about, about death and grief, which is also very funny in um, You Left Early. But this one, I just wanted to... <laughs> So I'm insisting to my publishers, it's a rom-com, it's a rom-com with matchmaking ghosts. And they're saying, no, it's an imp- it's a poignant investigation into terrible loss and grief. Like, don't put loss and grief on the cover. And they're saying, it's about death, Louisa. And it's a comedy. Anyway, it's both. It is both. I mean, it is funny, but <laughs> honestly, I was I, I was crying by the end of the first chapter. I, mean, I know, just... I know. Page four normally does it. Yeah. <laughs> I've uh, heard that. It was just so affecting, and I think it's the way that you you talk about 
love in a in a way that you're not kind of banging on about it, but you get the sense of this absolute deep and abiding devotion between people. And so that loss is just heightened by the fact that you've described their connection so, so beautifully. Yeah, I'm terrible or romantic. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, of course, what happens is the ghosts of those who've died put their partners together. And there's one line that I just love, and this is very much towards the end. And we're speaking about Rasheen, and she says she's suddenly smiling, she's happy. And you write, it wasn't that the grief wasn't there, it's just that space had been made for happiness. And I just thought that was just perfectly encompassed what it's you were trying to amazing. say. amazing. I don't know how many sentences there are in a book. But you are, and I started counting, the 14th person to pull out that particular line. And I don't know if it's that, that line has sort of, you know, gone on Twitter or something, but no. that line rings such a bell with people. And for me, there was always that sense of, oh, my God, you're being unfaithful to them, you're being untrue to them by having any fun at all when they died and can't have fun. But I really wanted to make it kind of clear, you know, the dead don't want us not ever to have any fun. If they loved us while they were alive, why would they stop loving us just because they're dead? You know, are we all so small-minded that the moment we die, we turn into horrible, jealous, possessive people? So I had Nico, one of the ghosts, be a bit horrible and jealous and possessive because we're all human. But that actually, if you accept that you're dead, then you do accept that, you know, why would you want to go haunting your true love and scaring them and waking them up at night? You wouldn't. You'd surely want to help them be happy if you were at all a nice person. So in that way, it's a really optimistic and loving and sweet book, you know, about friendly, human, flawed ghosts trying to do the best thing for their poor, weeping widows. Yeah, and, and they do, and it's, and it's beautiful. Yeah, spoiler done. alert, happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody wouldn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But just in terms of back to kind of ghosts and, and what they do and how you mm. write about it, there's a supreme effort made by one of them to contact. This happens a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Jay teaches Nico how to do it. She she needs to alert somebody to the fact that, that her, her partner is very, very ill and she manages to break through. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Well... I mean, this book went through so many permutations, but in the end, what became apparent was that you have to have the rules, you have to make a, a credible world, and you have to stick to the rules. And my editor was very strict that they shouldn't be able to do anything physical. And I kind of wanted them to be able to. I wanted them to, you know, leave mysterious flowers around the place, and, and I quite wanted them to be able to go back and have sex, actually, but then everyone's saying, no, sex with dead people is icky, and I'm like... <laughs> Alan Rickman and Juliet Stevenson got to have sex in Truly Madly Deeply. It wasn't icky then. Uh, but we thought, oh, OK, OK, OK. So then you just have to work out what, what gets through, what could possibly break through that I could use as the kind of standard of what's possible throughout the plot. And it's, it's just that thing that, you know, what breaks through actually is love. What remains of us is love. And that intensity of feeling and desire for someone else. I mean, I'm, I am a terrible romantic but I'm also very practical and I do very much believe that loving somebody isn't sitting there going, oh, I love you. Loving somebody is the cup of tea. You know, it's mm. the cup of tea. It's the understanding that they really do want to be picked up even though they say they don't. You know, it's, it's what you do. Care is care. It's physical. It's mental. It's emotional. It's all those things. And so I wanted that to come through, that the ghosts' love for the people that they've had to leave behind 
can when things are really sort of fraught and, and dangerous and, you know, the veil is a bit thinner. And we've all felt that. I mean, I don't know a person, anyone that I've talked to, who hasn't. And, you know, we've all read Oliver Sacks. We all know that, you know, a dream is not reality and that we have strange memories that pop up in odd ways. Is it psychological? Well, almost certainly. Well, yes, of course. But equally, every culture has ghosts. Every culture has people hanging around when arguably they logically shouldn't be there. And we know what it feels like when that does happen. And I will never... Robert had this terrible joke that he would refer to himself as not a composer, but a decomposer. (laughs) And he had a really, really filthy, terrible sense of humour. During his funeral, the vicar making the eulogy mentioned that this was something Robert would say. And um, using slightly uh, more improper language, I heard... Very clearly, in my left ear, Robert's voice saying, well, I bloody am now, aren't I? <laughs> and just like, what, what? You know, and this was obviously, this is my brain making the joke that he would have made had he been there. And so that was my knowledge of him and my closeness and, and, and my love for him. But at the same time, it was his voice speaking as I heard it from outside my head. So what's that? Some kind of auditory hallucination or other? I'm sure Oliver Sykes could explain. If he wasn't decomposing himself. Well, (laughs) (laughs) he'll have written it down somewhere. So, you know, what what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But it is true, isn't it, that, that that sometimes the veil does feel thinner. And, it really and does. In the book, they do spend a lot of time trying to get back there desperately, but just not being able mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Well, it's got to be, I mean, you know, normally in a rom-com, it's about people getting together. But in this one, at the same time, you've got people leaving, you know, because the ghosts have to leave. We all know that. They can't hang around forever. That's not a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, that's not nice for anyone. Uh, Which is where the title comes from. There's a wonderful folk song called The Unquiet Grave. Oh, it's wonderful. And where, you know, the lady or chap is singing about their own true love in the greenwood he is laid and he's going down to weep on, weep, you know, for 12 months and a day on this person's grave. And then on the 12th month and a day, the corpse pipes up (laughs) saying, who is this that weeps and moans and will not let me sleep? And the lover saying, "Oh, I crave one kiss of your clay cold lips." And the corpse saying, "No way, mate. You know? <laughs> Sorry, if you have one kiss of my clay cold lips, your days will not be long." <sighs> and that's the thing, you know. You've got to have closure. And because neither of these couples broke up, you know, you don't break up with someone when they die; they just die. You still love them; they still love you. Only they're dead. But, you know, dead is a terrible quality in a boyfriend. It's, it's just <laughs> not. It doesn't function. Uh, so, I had to dismantle these two couples, let the ghosts go off into the stuff that we don't know and understand as the living and leave the living to carry on performing normal living duties like falling in love with each other. It's so beautifully written. The other thing I really liked about it is how multicultural it was. Again, without you saying anything obvious, but you have Greek, you have Irish, you have Ghanaian, and it's just a wonderful mixture of cultures. Well, people say, write what you know, and, um, you know, I'm, uh, I have, um, I'm 132nd Greek, you can tell by my long blonde hair. <laughs> By blood, I'm, I think, mostly Irish, though I'm not Irish. You know, I'm a Londoner. My daughter's dad is Ghanaian. I set this in a really real world, i.e. the world that I know. So it, it, it's kind of 
it would be a bit odd to me n- not to have you know all the, the the other cultures around because they are around. Mm. I just love the way that it wasn't a laboured point. It just this is yeah. yeah. You were saying to me that when you and Michelle first met, you were sort of pen pals. A great deal of this book is um, is emails between mm-hmm. the two or letters between mm-hmm. the two, and I wonder how closely that mirrors your letters with Michelle. Not really, as you will have noticed. Michelle is a very fine and specific writer, and his email correspondence is. <laughs> It's become actually one of the great joys of my life I mean, because everything that he writes, he writes well. And I wouldn't be able to recreate it and I absolutely wouldn't kind of quote or lift in that way. It would be, no, 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 no. But the, I mean, the, everybody loves letters and we kind of don't have them anymore. And I look at the sort of piles. I've kept pretty much every letter I've ever been sent. I've got, you know, boxes of stuff from when I was at university, notes left on my door, all sorts of things from when people were away and our correspondences. And, you know, we love them. And yet it's very hard to do it in, in the modern world. And, of course, you know, email is one way that one can. And I really wanted to give them that because then one could avoid the issue of whether or not they fancied each other and whether or not that was appropriate. Because I know that some people, you know, leap straight from bereavement into shagging everything in sight and others just never, ever can ever again. Or, you know, they can have sex, but they will never give the heart. So I wanted, just for the protection of the characters, really, themselves, especially Roisin, because, you know, that was a very sudden death and she was just completely thrown by it, whereas Rasmus, who lost his wife, Jay, it was a long illness, so they kind of talked about it and had opportunities to attempt to be mature and realistic. So, yeah, I didn't want them to sort of, you know, be in a room together and fall into each other's arms because that was not as interesting. I wanted them to develop it carefully and gently. So Mm. that, in a way, would be an echo because that's what I would wish for anybody under those circumstances, you know, if that's what they want. If they want to run around and set fire to Tinder, then fair enough. That's their business. (laughs) That's what they need. What What I loved about this, though, was that we got to know them as they got to know each other through these letters. Yeah, yeah. That too, that too. And just, just beautifully done, and I love the change of font when they're talking to each other on a, on a, in, in a business way. <laughs> yeah, that was sweet, wasn't it? <laughs> so, Louisa, what's next? I'm so glad you asked, because if you'd asked me last week, I would have shaken my head miserably and, and given you nothing worth hearing at all. But one of the things that's happening is that I am writing the libretto for an opera based on this. Small little opera, I know, but I finished it, first draft finished, yesterday. And looked at it and thought, you know what, this actually does look like it. I mean, I've never done anything like that before. But um, there's a composer called Mark Springer, who is a very prolific and kind of just ridiculously talented. He's just music. Put him at a piano, it just pours out. He makes it up while he goes along. He does this sort of living composition thing. He can't stop. But he does like to sort of organise himself and actually sort of write them down, write music for other instruments and so on. And he's done an opera before. He had a, an opera called Army of Lovers about the um, the, the sacred band of, of soldiers who were all couples uh, with a libretto by David Flussfeder. And he hadn't actually read the book, this book, but he said, that would make a good opera. And I was like, oh, my God oh, my God, you know, maybe it could. Anyway, so I thought I'll give it a go, and it seems to be working. So this is probably not going to make my fortune or anything, but it's really interesting to do, and I'm so looking forward to working with a a proper musician again to 
you know, have someone who can actually do the music side with a bit more than three chords. <laughs> I mean, he's absolutely right. What a mm. great opera that, that would well, be. Well, you know, you've got the four voices. Yeah. And so I'm c- cutting the plot right down and I think it might be absolutely wonderful. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> 12 Months and a Day is by Louisa Young. It's published in the UK by Borough Press and in the US by Putnam. Yes. It'll come out in America in spring 2023. It's a wonderful book. I highly, highly recommend it. And I think you should also, at the same time, read Louisa's previous book and you should read uh, everything that Michelle Faber has ever written. So. <laughs> There's a lot to be getting on with there. (laughs) (laughs) Louisa, thank you so much. Thank you, Georgina. uh, For for coming in. That's Louisa Young, and you've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Maya Renfer. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.